1: Well, welcome to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I'm Jules from beautiful Southern California. Glad you could be with me as we are talking a lot of science about energy, about death, and even near-death experiences. And what, you may ask, does this have to do with the Law of Attraction? Well, it has everything to do with it because we are all energy down to uh, the very core of our thoughts so of course we're learning more and more scientifically about our spiritual connection and we're losing some of those dogmatic beliefs that really keep us powerless today science is proving what we all know intuitively to be correct using science to back up our intuition leads the collective consciousness into this powerful awakening My goal is to awaken people to their power in order to create the golden age of peace and prosperity and abundance for all. So tonight I'm going to be talking about Russian scientist Konstantin Korokov who photographed people at the moment of their death and what the photographs show of the energy of the soul leaving the body. Then I'm going to be talking about the Harvard-trained neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander, who wrote a best-selling book about his near-death experience. And he came back with things as a scientist, knowing that some of these things that he experienced just could not be disproven. And then we're going to be talking with Dr. Jeffrey Long, about his extensive library of near-death experiences. Now, what I'm hoping that you're going to walk away with is a better understanding that there really is no such thing as death, especially what we were taught originally about it. Now, this is such a fascinating show. I really want you to pay attention and sit back, relax, kick up your feet, and just get ready to remember what we're talking about right here on law of attraction talk radio we'll be right back
0: it's here it's hot and it's a must read it's the science behind the law of attraction magazine Every issue brings you great articles and in-depth how-tos from all your favorite Law of Attraction experts, authors, scientists, and medical professionals. Go to lawofattractionmagazine.net. That's lawofattractionmagazine.net. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network heard by millions worldwide through 38 internet radio stations and in over 135 countries. Come join us on Facebook for your daily dose of inspiration and action that reveals the secret within you. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash law of attraction radio network. That's facebook.com forward slash Law of Attraction Radio Network.
1: Okay, we are back. Just want to remind people that we're signing people up to receive the print version of our law of attraction magazine if you'd like to sign up for a subscription and have it delivered to your home via mail just go to lawofattractionmagazine.net and if you want to be a supporter of the show and help me get the word out to every country in the world go to getjoyride.com and you can obtain a free print subscription as a reward for your support yeah it's called fair energy exchange (laughs) you know in the next few weeks we have got a huge lineup starting with dr bruce lipton and Joe Vitale along with hypnotherapist Maggie Wilde talking about weight loss and our friend Foster Gamble. They're all going to be coming on one right after the other. So tell your friends to tune into my show on stitcher.com especially if your car has an internet dashboard or iHeartRadio or Tune in at the Law of Attraction Radio Network at LOARadioNetwork.com and you can see a whole bunch of ways to listen to my show. Russian scientist Konstantin Karako photographed people at the moment of their death with a special bioelectrographic camera that he developed in which You can see a blue gas discharge representing the life energy leaving the body gradually after death. According to Karakov and his documented studies, the navel and the head are the first to lose their life force, which could be the soul, and that the groin and the heart are the last areas where the energy leaves. He did a two-year study in which he used deaths attributed to old age young deaths from illness and even people who suffered violent and unexpected deaths. Now with the unexpected death through this blue gas discharge and imagery of spikes and amplitudes he saw that that these deaths usually manifests a state of confusion and the energy get this even returns to the body days after the death he explained this could be the result of unused energy but i think the consciousness may be so confused that it's trying to get back into the body just a note There are many hospice workers and relatives who witness the death of their loved ones or patients in which they can see the energy leave the body. So this explanation of the photographs is not anything new to the people who can actually see the energy leave the body. And it's amazing how many people are coming forward to reveal this fact right now. Karakov is the Director of Research Institute of Physical Culture in St. Petersburg, Russia and is endorsed by the Ministry of Health of Russia. This technique of capturing the life force energy is used by more than 300 doctors in the world for stress and monitoring progress of patients, such as those who are being treated for cancer. Karakoff says his energy photographic technique can be used to watch all kinds of imbalances biophysically and diagnose in real time. And also, it can be shown if a person who spouts that they have psychic powers is or is not a fraud in other words these cameras imagery equipment conveys the actual energy levels within the body it's like the machines that read auras within a fingerprint so yes his studies show conclusively that the energy simply does not die it just takes on a different form here we are today science is proving that there is no such thing as death i find professor Kurkov so fascinating and as i was gathering more and more information and watching various interviews of him he was asked about the quality of food in America, and he, he said it's not so good. <laughs> not like Russia. Russia has much better food. But he said also said something very interesting. You know, America is known for innovations. All the factories that built the cars and the manufacturing plants that really brought us great success and prosperity. And it also brought about this new innovation on how to harvest food and animals and this resulted in making the animals or the meat that we eat confined into small areas and of course the need for antibiotics and hormones were necessary because it really couldn't take the place of a free-range roving animal. This led to food and technology developing genetic manufacturing food known as GMOs. And through this technology, they are discovering many things that could only take time to fully understand the effects. And what it has revealed in test results with GMO foods, seeds, harvests show up in future generations with mutations studies have shown in mice deformities occur in the next generation in other words the full complexity of GMOs will show up in your children and in their children so this is the importance of GMO labeling and to make sure that as many people as possible know that it's time to stay away from the GMO and those processed foods in the grocery store. It's time to dive in more to the organic foods that are grown locally. He also talked about water being live or dead and places emphasis on the energy held within the water the most powerful and pure water is that of spring water running through and flowing through these rocks and picking up these minerals just the action of the flow is increasing the electric fields the energy field within the component of the water Now water coming from the tap, especially those in very old corroded pipes, is not clean and pure. And we all need to know that they put arsenic, mercury, fluoride, and even medications such as Prozac in the water. You know, I remember when my dad died and I had to witness the hospice nurse dumping down all the morphine down the toilet. They had to. It was the state law. And guess what? That water is reclaimed into the public water system. We take that morphine. We take that arsenic. We take that Prozac. Everything. We drink from our tap water. He even mentioned that the reverse osmosis water is basically stripped of energy and is not good for us. We need free flowing water to make us healthy. It really makes sense if you can put it into a new way of thinking about our bodies being energy and that in order to keep our energy up and thriving, we have to have energy come back into the body through pure water. Now remember the late Dr. Emoto who showed us photographs of crystallized water that we could manipulate by giving it positive thoughts such as love, peace, hope, beauty. Our mind had the power to change our beliefs and it affected the water through our positive thoughts. So maybe it's time for everyone to now focus on sending our local supply of water powerful thoughts of love and positive energy i would love to see the local municipalities do this experiment but yet we're still not at that point unless you can start writing letters and saying hey this is what science is proving let's get on the bandwagon here you know last week we had dr harvey Bigelson, who came on and he was talking about live blood versus dead blood in which he could effectively diagnose a patient the blood will also reveal the thoughts and emotion of a person and which organ is being affected by those negative emotions again we're going back to the power of our energetic mind and thoughts you and i have long known that the body is simply giving hints as to what is really happening emotionally to the person by creating illness or disease it brings us out of alignment it all comes down to energy and perhaps the most important message to all of this is how to fully engage our thoughts in which to create a safer and healthier world now let's look at Dr Eben Alexander and what he had stated about the near-death experience now he's a Harvard trained neuroscientist And guess what, he had a near-death experience and wrote a best-selling book about his experience. And before he had the near-death experience, he didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. Well, that's understandable. He was trained in Western medical schools and surrounded by medical colleagues who are deeply invested in the materialism view of the universe and the thought of the idea of the soul was just ridiculous to him so like most skeptics he believed stories of the afterlife to be hallucinations or product of the human imagination dr alexander changed his mind after he was in a coma for seven days caused by severe bacterial meningitis during his coma he experienced a vivid journey into what he knew to be the afterlife visiting both heavenly and not so heavenly realms after returning to his body and experiencing miraculous healing against all odds he went on to write the new york Times best-selling book called proof of heaven now Doesn't that story kind of remind you of Anita Morjani with her experience and her book Dying to Be Me? What Dr. Alexander confirms is that our life here is just a test to help our souls evolve and grow and that the way we succeed in doing so is to proceed with love and compassion here are just a few other notable points he made the experience of the afterlife was so real and expansive that the experience of living as a human on earth seemed like an artificial dream by comparison another point he made is that the fabric of the afterlife is pure love Love dominated the afterlife to such a huge degree that the overall presence of evil was incredibly small. If you wish to know the universe, you have to know love. Again, we go back to what Greg Braden told us, that love is expansion and fear is contraction. The world was created by love. That is source energy. Another point he made is that in the afterlife, all communication is telepathic. There are no need for spoken words, nor any separation between the self and everything else happening around you. All the questions you ask in your mind were immediately answered to you telepathically as well. In other words, energy becomes communication Whereas words simply cannot express the true meaning behind the thought, behind the energy. And also, we all have that voice within our head. And if we can configure that to be our inner guidance, we will be getting more infinite, intuitive information given to us simply the power of our minds when asked what dr alexander wants everyone to know about the spiritual realm he answers saying that you are precious and you're infinitely loved more than you can possibly ever imagine you are safe you are never ever alone the unconditional and perfect love of the source energy neglects not one soul isn't that beautiful let me repeat you are always safe you are precious and you are so loved you are never alone and the perfect love of source energy neglects not one soul ah beautiful He also went on to state that love is, without a doubt, the basis of everything, not some abstract, hard-to-fathom kind of love, but the day-to-day kind that everybody knows and the kind of love that we feel when we look at our spouse or our children or even our animals. In its purest and most powerful form, this love is not jealous or selfish, but it's unconditional. Now, many of us now on the planet cannot even understand what unconditional really means. And I personally think that this love that is unconditional can be felt through the heart's coherence, which is more powerful than just the human feeling of love. Through the heart's coherence, the feeling you get is more in line With the love of being so incredible. So overwhelming. That it's beyond our everyday human awareness. Truly this is the connection of the human being. To the source energy of all that is. I think this is why people come back so changed. After they've had a near death experience. Because once they're there they could feel that unconditional love and many of us here on planet earth are totally unable to feel what that means because we're kind of in that materialistic kind of love and unable to fully grasp what this unconditional love is all about. Now Dr. Alexander goes on to talk about the reality of realities. The truth of truths that lie and breathe at the core of everything that exists or will ever exist. We are powerful, energetic beings based on the expansion of love. Those who can grasp this concept in their human form Can achieve their life's purpose in this lifetime so what he is speaking of and what all of the doctors and the professors that i've just mentioned are talking about is the law of attraction if we can simply remember the source of our expanding power called love we can harness this energy in our life to bring about dramatic changes to the world's collective consciousness that's pretty powerful isn't it i think it is and i think this is the key on how we shift the world so now let's chat with with dr jeffrey long who is an anesthesiologist about his caseload library of the near death experience welcome dr jeffrey long to the law of attraction talk radio I am so glad that you could be with us to take away this taboo subject of life after death.
2: Well, Jules, it's a real pleasure for me to be here tonight with you also. As you said earlier, this is certainly going to be a very interesting, exciting show. We certainly have a lot to talk about. The fear and sadness that you said that's been surrounding death, I think we're popping that bubble of illusion through the websites and our worldwide outreach
1: always love hearing that we're changing the world but this is so unique for another doctor to come out and talk about have you received any flack from western medicine
2: you know it's interesting the substantial majority of physicians at this point in in time still do not accept that near-death experiences are medically inexplicable now that's not based on their review of the literature or their careful consideration of arguments pros and cons it's just simply based on the fact that they can't conceive that it's possible. Now, the interesting thing is is when I sit down with physicians one-on-one or to a small group and they find out that this is the research area that I'm involved with and we start talking about some of the evidence, the substantial majority of physicians will say, oh, wow, that's interesting. I get it. There really is evidence justifying the reality of near-death experiences. It's really not one of these uh... you know woo woo things uh... you know that a lot of people believe in without a lot of evidence behind it and actually the substantial majority of physicians at least when i'm talking with them come to accept the reality of near-death experience it's all based on the evidence Jules, and that's what our websites and research effort have been so focused on and so much about
1: when dr elizabeth kubler ross wrote her book that's when i noticed things started changing in medicine and then later, she came to the theory that there is no such thing as death. Is that your opinion as well?
2: Yeah, there's no question about that in my mind. Uh, understand, uh, I guess for the sake of your, uh, assume your listeners, most of them will know what a near-death experience it is. Is But just in the event that some don't, what I'm talking about here is studying experiences where people basically die. They may clinically die. Their heart stops or at least they're so severely physically compromised from some illness or trauma that they're unconscious. And yet, at this point of unconsciousness, they have a highly detailed, often very lucid experience that, as you mentioned earlier, is similar all around the world. So from my point of view, medically, it's absolutely impossible to have this kind of organized, lucid experience, which is so similar as shared among so many people at a time when, medically speaking, your unconsciousness, the very definition of unconscious means no consciousness, mm. no ability to have any type of memory, and yet that's not what our near-death experiences are describing.
1: I know that Western medicine tried to explain uh, the near-death experience away by saying it's kind of the drugs and the imagination within the brain that is having this experience. Would Could you explain now, this?
2: If there's uh, there's really nothing that could account for, uh, for instance, several of the most evidential parts of near-death experience. About half of them early in the in the uh, near-death experience, their consciousness separates from the body and is above their physical body most of the time, on the average, maybe about 15 feet. And from that vantage point, they can see their unconscious body or often their frantic resuscitation efforts. And this is ongoing while they're unconscious or even clinically dead. And part of the study that I've done is to see accurate these observations are. We've studied hundreds and hundreds of near-death experiences that involve these types of observations. Now, medically speaking, I would be able to pick up on inaccuracy or false impressions or anything that could account for an unreal observation because of my medical background, and they're in this state so often describing their medical resuscitation procedures. What we're finding is about 97, 98% of the time, what they see and hear were in, they're in that out-of-body state, usually early in the near-death experience, is absolutely accurate with no error whatsoever. And you can't explain that by hypoxia, which means low oxygen levels in the blood, or by brain chemistry, or by any other medical explanation at all. You simply cannot have that type of of accurate observations while you're unconscious. It's medically inexplicable.
1: Wow. You mentioned um, floating outside the body. Is this typical of a near-death experience?
2: Uh, During an NDE, um, it's only about half of the time they actually have that. Now, the other typical elements of an NDE, besides that initial out-of-body experience, people have heard the uh, archetypical traveling through a tunnel. Very often there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel. Um, They may encounter deceased relatives. They may review all or a portion of their prior life experiences, Uh, very often they come to a decision with other beings that they encounter about whether they are going to return to their body, and then they do so. So just in a very quick nutshell, that's the near-death experience elements. Very few near-death experiences have all those elements, and actually uh, uh, most NDEs have uh, only a few of those elements. But by the time you study large numbers of NDEs, and we have on, on our website, we've studied, believe it or not, 1,600 NDEs. pattern is extremely clear. These elements occur over and over, and generally in a very consistent order.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. And it's from all over the world, too.
2: Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, portions of our website that study NDEs have been translated into over 20 different foreign languages. Uh, that's all toward the credit of our webmaster, Jody that's been sort of her second full-time job to do this, but as a result of that we have more experiences shared from all around the world in first-person, in other words, people in non-English speaking countries that share in English or, due to a team of, believe it or not, over a hundred volunteer translators, we have people share in their native language, their NDE, we have our volunteers translated into English and then we share it back with the world. So as you said earlier, Our website is absolutely the largest publicly available collection of NDEs by far, by orders of magnitude, actually, than any other source in the world. So we're basing our observation not on wishful thinking or uh, based on what prior research has demonstrated, but this is purely unique research driven by studying the NDEs shared with our website. And it is, exactly as I said, medically inexplicable. There is no explanation for it. Every shred of evidence that we're encountering, these 1,600 NDEs suggest that consciousness, who we are, our our very being, survives our physical bodily death, that there is an afterlife, and there's a wonderful afterlife.
1: Wow, that's really comforting. So tell me how uh, another country, let's say Iraq, how do they interpret this near-death experience? Are the experiences similar to, say, somebody here in the U.S.?
2: And that's a really critical question. In fact, one of the major study uh, components of our NDE website has been to study NDEs from very different, if you will, non-Western cultures. I actually wrote a portion of an academic book chapter on this very topic. We have portions of our website in uh, Arabic and other non-Western languages so that people can can read the questions in their own native non-Western language, uh, write it up, respond to it in their own non-Western language, and then we have volunteer translators share that. So we have some of the best way to observe and study NDEs from non-Western civilizations that's ever been possible before. And the answer is, well, the question, of course, that you're getting to before we get to the answer is, are these non-Western NDEs similar or are they dissimilar? to English or Western NDEs and of Uh of course the implication is very significant. If the NDEs are completely different then of course that suggests they're culturally derived. NDEs are probably due to prior belief systems or or what we all learned as part of our upbringing and that would suggest a very different cause of NDEs. But Jules, if the NDEs from non-Western countries are very very similar to Western NDEs, what a shock that would be. That would suggest that there's a cause of NDEs that is independent of our cultural beliefs, our religious beliefs, and suggests that there's something much, much more going on. And the answer is they're remarkably similar. Wow. I've been absolutely astounded now with about 25 non-Western civilization NDE's and how amazingly similar that they are to, to Western NDE's. No question about that. That which causes NDE's, that which allows the experience of the NDE to unfold is clearly something separate from our prior belief system, what we were taught would happen after death, uh, from religious beliefs, from even radically different cultures from all around the world, all of them pointing to the same cause of NDEs, and that being that there really is something going on in this universe other than what we know on Earth, that there really is that higher consciousness, divine, or God, as it's all been variably called by NDEs themselves.
1: Yeah, the incredible source of energy of all that is. Dr. Jeff, what what about those who may be blind? Have you any studies on that, and how does that correlate?
2: Um, yeah. <laughs> sure do, Jules. Boy, it's almost like you've got the best questions here. Let's talk about blind NDE. Uh, people that are that have vision for some number of years of their life and then become completely blind, may have vision in their dreams or may have, uh, you know, may have some remembrance of visual impressions, but Jules, not people that are born blind from birth. People born blind from birth, absolutely, physically impossible for them to have any visual impressions whatsoever. They don't see in their dreams. Uh, They may have, in their dreams, may contain the sense of hearing or touch or olfactory, gustatory sensations, the remaining four senses, senses, but not vision. It's impossible near-death experiences have been described in people blind from birth. And guess what? Stunningly visual near-death experiences. Not fragmentary, not disorganized, not maybe. But what they describe are near-death experiences that are typical of those that have vision. Same types of elements, uh, remarkable detail described, and I've actually spent a great deal of time talking with uh, a lady called Vicki, who is blind from birth. Uh, Absolutely amazing to talk to these individuals blind from birth, they're, uh, they're, they're always so, so so excited to talk about the one time in their life when they were able to see. The only thing I, none of us will ever be sure of is whether they see color. They describe the uh, objects and the beings and the other people that they saw as being different shades of brightness. Uh, and Interestingly, too, the uh, one person I talked to blind from birth that had an NDE, Vicki, she describes her vision uh, as basically seeing things in 360 degrees, in other words, in all directions around her, which doesn't have the visual limitations that we all do, with sort of the pie-shaped visual fields due to the location of our eyes in our eye sockets. But Vicky's not the only one. Other researchers have described other people blind from birth who've had remarkably visual NDEs.
1: So they're seeing like their deceased parents. They're seeing everything that they haven't seen before.
2: Absolutely. Well, in fact, any everything they're seeing they've never seen before. When I talked to Vicky, the first time she ever had any visual impression was in the emergency room right after her nearly fatal auto accident, and all of a sudden, boom! She saw herself lying down on a stretcher down below her. Now, she was in, as we described earlier, that out-of-body phase that's common early in the course of NDEs, and she saw a body lying down there. She had vision for the first time in her life, and Jules. Imagine what her first reaction would be to be able to see for the first time in her life. It, you probably can't. She was terrified. This was so unfamiliar to be able to see, so outside of her entire life experience, and she was in her, I think she was about 22 years old at the time of this, that she was just absolutely frightened and mm-hmm. horrified. It took her a while to calm down and correlate her sense of feel of her long hair and how she felt the ring on her finger. She finally was able to correlate what she had only known in her prior life through the sense of touch with what she was now seeing through for the first time in her life a sense of vision and then and only then did she say oh my that's me down below
1: wow that's really amazing so what if a person is deaf they can't hear
2: the again you know if you're deaf sometime later on in your life your dreams will still have uh, auditory, that means sound in them, or voices, or you can basically hear. So you still remember what, what hearing is like and you still have the ability to have memories or recollections involve hearing. But Jules, once again, if you're born without the ability to hear, then you don't know what hearing is. You don't know what sound is. It's, it's an abstraction. It's something that you can't even imagine. And yet, in our website, we've encountered the first person who was born deaf born completely without the ability to hear and yet had a near-death experience. What's very interesting about the NDE is that she was communicating with actually a fairly large group of deceased relatives in part of his NDE, and yet he was able to understand them. A lot of NDEers call this telepathic communication, but this clearly was outside of any possible uh, ordinary sense that he'd had. It didn't involve any visual impressions. It didn't involve any tactile. It means touch, like braille. He was just simply standing and communicating with a large number of deceased relatives, and he understood them perfectly, and in turn, he was understood perfectly by them. So it's somewhat analogous to hearing, and that's the first NDE of that type that's ever been described in the world's literature. So absolutely no question about it, regardless of the handicap you have, NDEs cross all physical boundaries and are independent of any prior life physical handicap that one might have. And, as you and your listeners can easily imagine, that's, again, some of the strongest evidence that NDEs are for real.
1: Wow, that's just amazing. Let's talk about self-inflicted or suicides.
2: Well, first of all, one thing that NDEers, that's near-death experiencers, if you will, I'll, I'll say it, one thing they come back with almost every single time if they've committed suicide in nearly die and come back and are able to tell about their near-death experience. Those that have tried to commit suicide, had an NDE, and come back to share with the world almost uniformly come back with the belief that suicide is not the answer, that they were wrong, in fact they were extremely wrong, and that we need to live out our life on Earth no matter how difficult. So people that have an NDE as a result of suicide are much, much, much less likely to attempt suicide again later in their life, which is very, very interesting. Now as far as the types of experiences that NDEers have that try to commit suicide and have their NDE as a result of that, they're actually identical to people that have their life-threatening event as a result of some cause other than suicide. Mm -hmm. Same types of elements, uh, you know, a small percentage are frightening, the overwhelming majority are very blissful, peaceful. Uh, They may encounter uh, deceased relatives, tunnel light, all the elements that occur in, from all causes of NDEs are all there.
1: No question about it, people come back from that experience totally changed, their mindset has changed.
2: Yeah, and that's what the NDEers would say, if they, if they have an NDE they re- that's the one critical thing that they learn no matter how else people have their NDE as a result of any other life-threatening event, they never come back with such a uniform belief that suicide is wrong as, as uh, suicidal in the ears. No question about that.
1: That's wonderful. So let's talk about in the event of a heart attack, what does a person experience?
2: Here's what happens when you have a heart attack. The moment the heart stops, when you have a heart attack, that means uh, cardiac arrest, and that means the heart stops and once the heart stops, of course, blood flow to the brain stops immediately because you have to have the heart pumping to pump blood up there. From the time blood stops flowing to the brain, within 10 to 20 seconds, if you're measuring the electrical activity in the brain through an EEG or electroencephalogram, if you will, fancy measurement of electrical activity of the brain, from the moment your heart stops beating, 10 to 20 seconds later, electrical activity goes absolutely flat. It's not detectable by any device. So you're unconscious, and above and beyond that, you have no electrical activity in your brain, and you can't have a conscious experience, or or can you? Because that's the time that people have their near-death experiences. That's the time they see themselves being resuscitated. Sometimes they can even see the electrocardiogram monitor documenting that their heart electrical activity is absolutely flat. This is a time people have these vivid, dramatic, and highly detailed NDEs when they shouldn't be, when they've had cardiac arrests or heart attacks, which is one of the more common causes, of course, of NDEs.
1: But what does the person experience? I mean, when it happens, are they going up to the white light, uh what are they seeing what are they experiencing being on the other side of the veil i
2: mean again no no two ndes are the same and generally the order of elements of an nde are somewhat different but in general um, they the by the time they encounter a, a light that's often described as very bright and has sort of a mystical characteristic it is light is used but that's not really a good term because we all are familiar with light and yet this is uh, it's light in the sense that it's bright, but it's very, very different from what we encounter from Earth. Uh, if you talk to to ears, and this, this light, like I said, has a mystical component. There may be a sense of love or peace with it. Uh, they may sense that there's a being associated with the light, even if the being is not, not clearly defined. So that occurs. It may occur. Almost always, they have to have gone through the out-of-body part of the near-death experience. Very often the light is at the end of a tunnel, or they may encounter a light in some unearthly or other people have said heavenly realm. And at that point in time, the light may be there. And some of the people that have the deepest and most transcendent NDEs, they may actually have a sense that their their being or their consciousness is merging or becoming a part of the light. And that's also a very dramatic thing, uh, fairly uncommonly described, but again, very consistently described in terms of it being an encounter with something overwhelmingly loving, overwhelmingly knowledgeable, overwhelmingly compassionate. And uh, you know, even though I've read 1,600 of these, geez, I still get goosebumps every time I read some of these really dramatic encounters and uh, you, and, and uniting with this uh, supreme mystical light that's in the ears described.
1: So whether they die or they come back? is it safe to assume that this is the typical experience? Well,
2: I I believe that to be true. And in fact, some strong uh, evidence collaborating that impression comes from so-called shared near-death experiences. Occasionally, two people uh, encounter a life-threatening event at the same time. And we have an occasional NDE where they are basically two people in the out-of-body state at the same time as a result of both of them suffering severe injuries. They can talk, they interact. Uh, they share concepts and uh, are aware of, of what's going on, and yet uh, one of them may say, you know, one of them may be injured more severely than the other and die. And so physically, they they die, die, and their consciousness doesn't return, while the other person who interacted with that be- other b- person in the out of body state can return and tell the tale. So that's some of the strongest evidence that they are interacting with, sharing with a person who is, if you will, permanently dead in the out-of-body state during an NDE, so-called shared NDEs. Again, further strong evidence that that's the pathway that we all go through when we die.
1: So I would assume that it's a common occurrence for the person who is dying to actually say right before the moment of death, I see the white light. Are there reports of this?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's been referred to as deathbed visions, and a small percentage of people that are near death will have a fairly striking sudden return of consciousness. They'll suddenly be looking as if they're looking at something. Uh, they'll, they'll smile. They may, may sit up in bed even though they've been been flat in bed for days. And if they're able to communicate, they'll often be uh, interacting with what either seems to be a deceased friend or relative of theirs or a spiritual being. And it's almost always a very... their eyes light up, they smile, it's a very joyous type of experience that they have very near the end of their life. Uh, and Moreover, we have, again, because we've studied so many experiences, we have a small collection now of so-called shared deathbed visions. In other words, these uh, people that are dying may look up or, or see something, and yet one or several people around them sees the same thing. It's a light. Uh, it's a voice. It's it's some sort of like... Some of the elements that you encounter in NDEs, and it's all part of the, probably all part of the spectrum of experiences that NDEs are, but no question that that absolutely really does happen. Uh, It's based on research I've done and, and plenty of other research that actually goes back to the 1800s. So there's no doubt that that's a, a part of what some, some lucky few experience.
1: Gosh, one answer brings up another question. What about children? What do they experience?
2: Well, you know, that's a really good question because it's, of course, children, and especially the very youngest children, say, in the first few years of life, they wouldn't have religious beliefs firmly set up. They wouldn't have the ability to have a lot of cultural values established. They wouldn't have had any concept of what it's like to die. To very young children, that's an abstraction and not anything that they can even grasp or understand. So a real interesting question is, what about the very youngest children in the first few years of life? What are their NDEs like? Well, because we have so many NDEs, we have the largest population of small children, say age 5 and under, that have ever been studied in the world. In the book I'm writing, and it will come out in about oh maybe a year, year and a half, we're actually going to release the results of the of the studying a fairly good sized group of these very youngest children. And the answer is their NDEs are strikingly similar to adults. They share their experiences decades later when they're adults, and by the way, it's been very well established that NDEs are not, details are not forgotten, nor are details embellished or added onto even if NDEs are shared years to decades later. So from other research that's been done, we're very confident of the accuracy of these accounts shared even a long time later. So from our group of adults that shared these dramatic NDEs that they had as small children, again, very striking similarity to adults. Uh, Again, completely consistent with the concept that all uh, converging lines of evidence point to, all our research lines of evidence suggesting that NDEs are not a product of prior beliefs or religious values or anything else, it seems to be what the overwhelming majority of Indy ears themselves actually believe, and that is they've encountered the divine, God, higher consciousness, the all-powerful, uh, as that concept may be variously described.
1: So what about the changes in people after they've had a near-death experience?
2: And that's a real good question. It's the, the, the so-called after-effects. After-effects refers to how the person changes after they've had this incredibly powerful close brush with death, an incredibly powerful experience, and then they return to life. Now what? Well, because the NDEs are so different from their pre-existing belief system most of the time, because it's so unexpected and such a powerful experience, it takes the NDEers on an average seven years to fully integrate the experience into their life, I mean, it's a slow process, and because it, it involves some huge changes. There have been... And there's been a number of studies on this, Some very consistent changes in people's lives after an NDE. And what we find is that people tend to be, the NDEers are more loving. They're more compassionate. They care more about positive relationships. They will avoid relationships that are not positive and embrace new relationships that are positive. They are noticeably less materialistic. Very often they change jobs in order to have a job that allows them to Help other people uh, compassionately, and so there's some. And of course, NDEers almost uniformly don't fear death, and almost uniformly believe that there is definitely an afterlife. Because, well, absolutely, after all, jewels they experienced it. That's uh, very typical when you talk to an NDEer, especially if it's been many years after their NDE. That's what the, how they'll describe that they've changed. Oh, by the way, this isn't just a result of them nearly dying. There's studies that these after, so-called after-effects that I'm studying are talking about studies that, that document these, study people that nearly died but did not have an NDE, and then people that nearly died and had an NDE. And it's the people that had the NDE that by far and away are much more likely to have these types of changes. So it really is the NDE experience itself that leads directly to these overwhelmingly positive changes in their lives
1: you know i've heard that when people die and they come back some have developed a new talent that they haven't had before it's did you find this to be true
2: you no know, it's really interesting in ears uh, in fact, I was just looking up the statistics on that today. About half come back believing that they have some psychic or paranormal gift following the NDE that they did not have before. Now, that's been very interesting to read about the variety of these types of gifts. Some people believe they have healing gifts. Uh, some people believe that they're more intuitive or precognitive. As best I can tell, one of the most common themes in the types of, of paranormal or psychic gifts that they have is an intuition that's probably related to, and this is uh, my hypothesis at this point in time, this isn't the product of research, but as best I can tell from studying large numbers of NDEs, I think these people become much more compassionate, much more loving, they become much more aware of people around them. And so I think as a result of that, what they may be calling intuitive is actually just a product of more compassionate awareness of people around them. And that can, can re- reveal itself as being markedly intuitive, and that's one of the more common gifts. And yet, some people describe healing. Uh, even some, some people have gone on to become professional healers, uh, psychics. Uh, a number of psychics have had near-death experience that do that professionally, although uh, not, not large numbers. But again, it's just you know pretty much any psychic or paranormal gift you can think of. At one point or another, a near-death experiencer believes that they've developed that gift following their NDE.
1: So from your records, do the majority of the people that had the near-death experience, do they come back knowing that we are all connected, that we're all one?
2: You've nailed it. You've really hit on one of the most striking things that NDEers come back with. And that's very interesting because... Judeo-Christian teachings, religious belief teachings, doesn't really talk, and, and virtually none of the major world religions or belief systems or values that we all share, almost none of those existing belief systems really emphasize the concept that we're all interconnected, we're all one, that we're all a part of each other at a level that's far beyond our physical awareness on this earth. And yet, in the ears. Uh, when they talk about a concept of either being separate from others or one or connected with others, essentially uniformly, and again, this is, is a product of studying hundreds and hundreds of NDEs, all with that same type of concept, come back saying we really are connected, we really are one, we really are all part of that greater source. And it really is very important to NDEers to understand that, to realize how if you harm another person you're really in some very important way harming yourself. But conversely, if you're loving or compassionate to another person, you're actually loving and compassionate to yourself and really all other people as well. Uh, that is a profoundly significant, remarkably consistent finding among the over one thousand NDEs that we've studied. And that's that's really interesting because that, that clearly does not derive from pre existing belief systems. That clearly is an important Spiritual concept that seems to be important to for indie ears to come to understand during their experience
1: now you are an oncologist and you have a lot of patients who are dying so how has knowing all of this affected your practice and and how you think about oncology.
2: And you're right. I am an oncologist. My type of oncology work is so-called radiation oncology, which is the use of radiation to treat cancer. And so you're absolutely right. There's a large number of people that I treat with radiation. Um, the, The chance for cure is either extremely small or there is no chance for cure, and we're simply using radiation therapy to try to relieve symptoms and make them feel better. There's no question, as I look back over the eight years that I've been doing this work in the near-death experience arena, and it has definitely changed my attitude as a physician. I can't encounter these NDEs week after week after week with so many of them, I think, without adopting some of the values, some of the beliefs that the NDEs themselves have. There's no question that I, as a physician, am much more loving, compassionate, caring for my patients, interested. I'll, uh, you know, it's easy for me to go the extra mile because that's, it's what I want to do. It's not like I have to do or a job or it's just a part of, of who I am as a physician now and much, much more so than it was say 10 or 20 years ago when I was practicing medicine. And I think especially as a doctor that fights that most feared diagnosis uh, is one that has to take, be the front line of, of handling patients like that. There's no doubt that studying NDEs has given me an immense amount of courage I don't fear the death of my patients because I know they're going to have an afterlife and I know that afterlife will be wonderful. That has allowed me to be much more courageous, much more open with my patients. I can be much more that pillar of courage that they so much need when they're facing that life-threatening event than I ever could be. So there's no question that it has impacted me very, very positively in my daily practice of medicine. You know, and again, I think in some very mysterious way, I think anytime you reach out to anybody, lovingly and compassionately, even as a doctor to a patient, I am reasonably convinced. In my year and a half of my practice here in Gallup, New Mexico, I'm seeing people have less side effects of my radiation therapy treatment that I've ever seen in my life. I'm remarkably good outcomes. I am uh, again, this is a hypothesis, but I've certainly got a lot of evidence behind it at this point in time. I think I'm, you know, I almost hate to say this, but I think my ability to reach out to people compassionately and lovingly. May actually be helping cure these people at a level that I couldn't do before.
1: Wonderful. It's clear that this was your life's purpose. One last question, Dr. Jeff Long. Talk to me about Alzheimer's.
2: I'm quite confident that people that have Alzheimer's, once they they physically die, that they're going to suddenly be very lucid and have a very alert experience. A good analogy is very, very young children very often in NDEs, their degree of consciousness and alertness and awareness and their mental functioning is far higher and, and far quicker than would be commensurate with their physical age. And I think we see the same thing with Alzheimer's. So there's almost, almost certainly from drawing analogy of people that are unconscious, clinically dead, or you know, extremely young or extremely ill people that have severe mental impairment at the time of their NDE, uh, no question that Alzheimer's would be expected to have the same kind of conscious, lucid experiences. And certainly with after-death communications, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is not a rare cause of death. So we have a number of after-death communications where the person died of Alzheimer's. Really? And yet, in all of these after-death communications, in fact, I can't even think of a single exception, in all of these after-death communications where Alzheimer's disease uh, was the cause of death, The the person, when they uh, are encountering the living person, they see them as the picture of health, full mental functioning, no hint of the impairment of their Alzheimer's disease.
1: This is so wonderful. It's giving us so much information, and we only have a few moments left. You mentioned that you were in the process of writing a book.
2: Yeah, our book is going to contain large numbers of research studies from analyzing this mammoth population of near-death experiences, so... Uh, about a, probably realistically about a year and a half. So stay tuned. It'll uh, uh, it'll be out at some future time. But it'll be uh, uh, evidence of heaven is the tentative name of it. So that'll be a very much detailed discussion and presentation of what we've been talking about tonight. You know we continue to study. We have so much data, and and uh, you know so many people that have shared been so wonderful sharing their experiences over all these years. You know, we do, you know, fairly major studies quite regularly, and we'll have them in the book or try to publish them at other other uh, uh, outlets as we go along.
1: You know, I've got to tell you that the work you're doing is changing and awakening the consciousness. This is so important, and especially today. So thank you so much for being a blessing to this world.
2: Well, I really appreciate it, too. These experiences are a profound message of hope, not only for the one experiencing it, but for the entire world. It's been a real honor to share that with your listeners tonight.
1: Wow. This has been a really, really powerful show. Thank you to all my wonderful listeners who have stayed with me through these eight years. And stay tuned because the best is yet to come. Have a great week ahead. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another great show from Law of Attraction Talk Radio. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send an email to Jules at LOARadioNetwork.com. And have a great week.